Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you and to open up God's Word as always together. We're in the second week of a seven-week series based on this book right here, Backyard Pilgrim, 40 Days at God's Feed. If you don't already have a copy, I would encourage you to grab one. You can go online, livegodspeed.org. This, unfortunately, is Lisa's copy. You can, maybe it'll go to the highest bidder. I don't know. They're, this is a hot commodity. So um, if you haven't listened to uh, last week's sermon, go ahead and, and sometime over the coming days, go listen to it, and you can still catch up in the series and jump in. Our hope is that you will join us on a pilgrimage on a pilgrimage that's going to root you down deep in the soil of knowing and loving God, knowing and loving yourself, knowing and loving the parish that God has placed you in. I want to actually begin with a little sharing, if anyone's willing. So if anyone is willing, actually has done the pilgrimage this week and, and has walked for 15 minutes and reflected, I wonder if there's any stories. Uh, did you enjoy it? Did you find it difficult? Did something surprising happen? Did you, did you learn anything about yourself or about your neighborhood or about God? So I'm going to tell a quick story as you think about one that you might share. Um, for me, I was thinking especially, I'm, I'm a little ahead of you guys. I'm in week two because I'm writing sermons. Um, and so one of the points this week was about being rooted and that God took Adam, which really means earth. He took an earthling and earthed him and rooted him down deep. And so we thrive and flourish as kids when we're in a place. So I was thinking about my place and I was walking along. And I live right off Wadsworth, and every time I go into my house, I drive past a particular place that is an eyesore, and it's associated with things that I don't particularly love. And there's a sign that is particularly frustrating to me, and we drive past it every day, and my kids see it, and it's just like, in my heart, I'm just like, it's almost like I want this place to burn down, without anyone inside inside of it, of course, but I wouldn't mind if it just burned down. But then I was thinking about my place, and particularly about the theme this week of being made in God's image. And we're called to love the city. We're called to love our neighborhoods. And I found myself a little convicted about my lack of love for this place. Yes, objectively, it's not real beautiful, but have I done anything to love it or have I just kind of judged it every time I drove by? So that was an experience that I had this week on my, on my parish path. Would anyone, just one or two of you, be so willing to just share? Um, did you enjoy your pilgrimage? Did you find it difficult? Something surprising happened? Did you learn anything about yourself or your parish? Or about God. So again, the invitation is to, it's, there's the Bible path and a parish path. The Bible path is one verse, quick reflection, you read it, and then at some point in the day, 15-minute walk around your parish that you choose, and it's a time of reflection, of just sort of guided reflection. And so you might not be able to do it every day. That's okay. This isn't just an obligation. This is an invitation to something that I really think will be life-giving for you and for us. So if you haven't started, jump in. Give it a try this week, even if it's just a few, a few times. And if you don't yet have the book and you want to order it, have a friend text you the, um, the, the parish path for the day. So this week we'll be in week two, and there's one, one path for each day. I'd really encourage you to jump in. And next week, um, we'll come back and share some more stories. So if any of you have something this week that, that, that um, jumps out at you, be willing to share next week. So this week, the, the question is, well, last week it was what kind of parent is God? And we said he's the kind of parent that delights in his children. And this week, it's what makes kids flourish. So last week was who is God? And this week is who are we? The Bible path is going to take you through Genesis 2. It's going to invite you to see that a flourishing kid 
is one who is rooted and gardening and free and creative and not alone and unique and unashamed. This week, as you walk your parish, you're going to ask God to help you recover what was good about your childhood and to heal what was not good about your childhood. Now, there's far too much to cover here, and I'd rather just cover one thing sort of well than five things poorly. So I'm going to focus on the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and this enormous biblical theme. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Right? It's really good to have you back. I just see you over there. It's really, really good to see you. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Really just two questions. What does this mean and why does it matter? What does it mean? Well, to say that this, the meaning of this has been debated is, is like an understatement on par with saying that the sun is warm. Throughout the millennia, thousands and thousands of scholars have dedicated millions of pages to this question, and here's just one thing that pretty much all of them agree on. So here we're on very safe ground. Being made in the image of God means that Adam and Eve are distinct from all creatures. And you say, wow, that's just life-changing. We're distinct. We can start there. We're different qualitatively than every other creature in creation. But this is actually life-changing. You know, Mount Evans is not made in the image of God. The sun setting over the Pacific Ocean is not made in the image of God. Yosemite Falls, in all of its stunning grandeur, is not made in the image of God. My beloved dog Ezra is not made in the image of God. Not turkeys, not peacocks, not soaring falcons, not elk, not pronghorn, not the quaking aspen grove, not your favorite rounded A basin, not many mouse or majestic moose, nothing else in all of creation is made in the image of God. Human beings and human beings alone. You, you are made in the image of God. You have a God-like glory in you that no other created thing has. Okay, but how? How are we distinct? What does this mean practically? You know, great minds have proposed a litany of possibilities. John Locke says it's our capacity for human understanding, intellect. Adam Smith says it's our division of labor. Others have said it's our capacity for self-improvement. John Stuart Mill said it's our capacity for sympathy and for intelligence. So every great thinker throughout the ages has proposed some sort of, here's what it means. More recently, scholars have argued that it's actually seen in that human beings don't have a fixed nature. They grow and they develop and they advance over time in a way that no other creature does, shaping the world and in turn being shaped by it. Here's G.K. Chesterton's take, which I particularly enjoy. He says, we as image bearers are the only truly wild animals. He puts it this way. Whoever found an anthill decorated with statues of celebrated ants? <laughs> Who has seen a beehive carved with images of gorgeous queens of old? We talk of wild animals, but man is the only wild animal. It is man that has broken out. All other animals are tame animals, following rugged respectability of tribe or type, or we might just say instinct. All other animals are domestic animals. Man alone is undomesticated. Now, Matt, Father Matt, this week in, in the book, on, I think it's on day three of our pilgrimage this week, he's going to make the same point. He says that our flourishing as children, as image-bearing children, 
is intimately wound up in our freedom. In his language, God gave us wings by which he means choices. Matt points out something I've actually never noticed before. Struck me very deeply. Have you ever noticed the first commandment in Genesis 2 that God gives man? The first commandment, it comes in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded man. Are you ready for the first commandment? You are free. The Lord God commanded man. You are free. You are free to eat any tree of the garden. Just don't eat the poisonous one. That will kill you. In giving us free will, God has given us wings, freedom. But then comes all these religious rules and commandments, right? How is that freedom? How are all these things I'm supposed to do freedom? Understand that for Christians, freedom is sort of like a falcon soaring in the heights, swooping down on its prey from above. A falcon can try to run down a mouse on a trail with, you know, three talons, one after the other. But why, but why would it? It's free when it cooperates with its design to soar and to swoop. So freedom actually isn't doing whatever you want to do. It's freely cooperating with your design. It's acting as an image bearer of God. Kind of like the falcon that soars. So back to the question at hand, what does the image of God mean? What does it mean? Now, there's a lot of truth in the litany of things I've just said, all these great thinkers and their proposals. But for our purposes, I really think a more fruitful line of inquiry comes from biblical studies, especially recent cultural studies. So actually really fascinating. A lot of this is very recent, and it's really helped us understand what, what is meant here. Cultural studies, particularly around the ancient Near East, and what was going on in the, in, the, the, in the culture surrounding Genesis. So an image of God in the ancient Near East, we now know, in the world behind the text of Genesis, making an image of God was quite common. Um, it usually meant very literally a carved or fashioned idol of a god, and its likeness, that was believed to carry the essence of what it represented. Um, it could also be like a human king who was thought to be the adopted son of a particular god, but typically it was a fashioned idol that would be placed within a temple of that god, and thereby representing that god and bringing its presence and even that god working through that image. So obviously this would often look like devotees of a particular god. They would build the temple. They would then put the, the image of that god in the middle of the temple. And thereby that deity had presence and influence and mediation in that space and in that territory. So in this context, man is the image of God placed in the garden temple of Eden. And Eden is a temple. That's why the temple had all kinds of beautiful garden decorations. The temple is meant to reproduce Eden in many ways. God places man, his image, in his temple. So what does this mean? First and most basically that mankind is God's representative on earth. You. You're God's representative. Some scholars say viceroy, to use an old word, on earth. Man is to be to the earth what Yahweh is to the entire universe. He is to and she is to be a microcosm of the divine life. Second, and related to that, just like the kings who were thought to be adopted children of God, of a particular God, and thereby bearing that God's image, we are adopted kin of Yahweh, the King of Kings. As his children now, we are called to have sort of a familial, um, just the way that a father or a mother influences the way children behave and be and reflect the family values, we now reflect the family values of God's righteousness and holiness and integrity and the fruits of the Spirit. 
And so what the philosophers postulate, free will and intelligence and sympathy and all these other things, yeah, but those are secondary because those are actually just the tools that we have been given to accomplish the purpose for which we are made, to represent God. Being made in his image then means a, a familiar relationship with God and a purpose to reflect him to the world. Among the most helpful analogies, I think, is N.T. Wright's angled mirrors. Did, I, did this slide make it in there, Ben? Is there? Great, you bring that up. This is N.T. Wright's analogy. Well, it's really a New Testament analogy. We'll get there in a minute. But um, we, among all creatures, have been uniquely equipped to praise God. In song, some of you are singers. In poetry, some of you write poetry. In dance, and in art, and in writing, and in skipping, and in lamenting, and in praying. We have been uniquely equipped to praise him. And when you do that, you are doing so as a representative of the whole world, reflecting the rest of the world back to God. You are doing what the rocks and the trees and the rivers have not been blessed to do. They wait for you to do it, to glorify God, to thank him for the gift of life and love and the sun and the rain and grace and bread. And in fact, every Sunday when we come here, we bring our offerings and we present the bread, which is the world, Back to God, we're doing what we are created to do, giving back creation to him in thankful praise. You know, at, at Mean Street Ministries this Thursday, oh, I'll say this, likewise, so this, this goes both ways. What I've just said is that we're taking the world's praise and we're reflecting it back to God. That's the angled mirror there, that black line. But it also goes the other way, doesn't it? At Mean Street Ministries, we saw this this Thursday. Human beings are, they're looking after creation they're to reflect God's healing and restorative justice in all sorts of different ways, reflecting God to the world. So at Mean Street Ministries, I sat with Ron. And Ron watched as he saw Heidi and Pablo and Aaliyah and Gretchen and John and Cindy and Ben washing feet and bandaging wounds and giving away socks and shoes. And Ron asked me, why did Jesus wash feet? Because Jesus... We are the marred image, the imperfect image. Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God, perfectly reflecting and modeling what God's love looks like. Service, willing the good of others, blessing others, loving others, cleansing others, forgiving others, tending to others. So when we are at Main Street Ministries serving others, we're just being image bearers. That's what image bearers do. We're angled mirrors. We're reflecting the love of God to our fellow image bearers. So at Mean Street or anywhere else you serve and love and bless and worship, as many of you do throughout the week, you're doing what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. We all, says Paul, with unveiled faces, we are looking as in a mirror, this is where N.T. Wright gets it, at the glory of the Lord. And as we look at him, we're imprinted with his image and are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. With unveiled faces, we're looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That's spiritual formation. That's how we're transformed. So the image of God is both to receive the imprint of his glory and it's to reflect it back to the world and it's to reflect the world's goodness back to God in praise. Well, now we've begun, begun to see at least what it means to be an image bearer. But what is... What does this matter? What's the significance of this doctrine? How does it change how we live? Is this like debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? No, far from it. This, is, this doctrine changes everything if you take it seriously. I mean, think about it. I wonder if this doctrine were believed and, and lived out by you and by all of your neighbors and by every human being on earth, what might change? Let's consider that. Notice that according to Genesis 1, being made in God's image is not earned. 
It's not earned by the sweat of your brow. It's just given. It's simply a future of creation. Every human being, the image of God is something human beings have, like triangles have three sides. It's what it means to be human. And this is important because it means you can't perform your way to becoming an image bearer, and you can't fail your way out of being an image bearer. Therefore, this theology is this, it's, it's like an unbreakable lock that secures the precious dignity of every human being who has ever lived. An unbreakable lock. I'm an, I'm, I'm an avid um, fan of a particular team that played this morning, which I'm not going to tell you, some of you know, but I don't want any of you to talk to me about what happened because I haven't watched the game yet. <clears throat> but I listened to a podcast um, around this team. One of the perennial problems of the Premier League in which this team plays is racism and homophobia. It's, a, it's an all-too-common occurrence for black players to be targeted or for homophobic slurs to be hurled at players. And one of my favorite journalists, who, whose podcast I listen to every week, spends almost weekly, like 10 to 15 minutes, talking about what nonsense this is. He just says, it's nonsense. And his solution every time is, we just need to educate these people. They just need to be educated, and that would take care of it. If we just educated these men who are acting like children, they'd stop this nonsense. But do you notice the assumption that he's making there? Like, what kind of education? To educate them that there are some things in the world that are wrong, presumably, he means, and that you shouldn't do, and that includes dehumanizing people because of their sexuality or because of the color of their skin. Now, we take this for granted in the post-Christian West, but we ought not to. The only reason we assume that this is the kind of education we should offer people is because of a Christian heritage. The Greeks and the Romans before Christ had a different sort of education to offer. Women, children, slaves, weak, poor, these were pawns to be used and abused to the benefit of the powerful however they pleased. Nazi Germany was educated to extinguish Jews. Mao's China was educated to murder for any sort of infraction, millions tortured for minor offenses. Antebellum America in the South was educated to enslave African Americans. Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, offered a particular vision of education when she said this. She said, birth control means the release and cultivation of better racial elements in our society and the gradual suppression and elimination of defective stocks. Those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Consider, in contrast, C.S. Lewis's Christian anthropology. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Of course, Martin Luther King grounded his movement in this biblical anthropology of Genesis 1 as well. He said, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man and woman, from a treble white to a base black, is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God, and this is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. There's no gradations in the image of God. So any education won't do, if you see. We need a Christian one, a Genesis one, pun very much intended, in which every human being has inherent dignity endowed by the Creator who made them in His image. And short of this Christian education, an education that sets out some kind of vision for human exceptionalism will prevail. Dignity by way of having the right race, dignity by having the, the highest intelligence, dignity by having the most advanced technology, or some other performative barometer will become the basis for dignity. 
And it has time and time again to the great cost of many, many lives and much tragedy. Now, the reason my favorite Arsenal pod... Don't tell me the score. (laughs) The reason my favorite uh, podcaster of this particular team can say that when he says... When he says we need more education, it's because he's riding the coattails of the post-Christian West that just assumes that humans have dignity, but that's actually rooted in and fertilized by Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This has been well documented. Many scholars have just made this point. It's irrefutable. The reason the West has this value is because of the scriptures and because of the Christians, especially early on, living it out in radical ways. But this doctrine doesn't only give person dignity, it also tempers this dignity with humility, lest we think too little or too much of ourselves. Because yes, you were made in the image of God, of God, of the glorious God, glorious dignity, but you were also made in the image, in the image of God. God, you are not. In biblical critical theory, Christopher Watkins points out that most anthropologies suffer from one of two errors. Either they make too much of man or too little. Man is either angel or he's a beast. The biblical doctrine of the image of God gives us a better way. Because on the one hand, man, you and I, and when I say man, you know I mean men and women. Genesis very clearly, very, very clearly takes great pains to show women and men are made in the image of God. So man as in mankind. Man is an animal. You and I, we're we're animals. God alone is on the creature, sorry, the creator side of the creature-creator distinction. Genesis tells us that Adam is not created from divine fairy dust, but from the good, honest muck of the earth, says Watkins. The name Adam, like I said, means earth. So Canlis interprets Genesis 2.15, the Lord good, the Lord God took the earthling and rooted him, or the earthling and earthed him. You have been earthed, earthling. (laughs) You are not God. You are a creature. You are made to root down into the dust, into the mud. Our dignity is intact, yes, but it's derivative. It's a derivative dignity. His is the ultimate dignity. So John Stott wrote years ago, he said, the biblical revelation reminds us that human beings are not self-explanatory. They derive their meaning from outside themselves, from God in whose image they are made. We are images. We are reflections. The dignity of our humanity is derivative. It comes from him whose image we bear. We are dependent beings. So if the recognition that we are made in the image of God keeps us from thinking too much of ourselves, we're just the image, then the fact that we're made in the image of God prevents us from thinking too little of ourselves. Do you see? Watkins concludes, only one creature in the vast cornucopia of creation dignifies, is dignified with this honor. You and me and every human being from the richest and the grandest to the poorest and the lowliest from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, image bearers. From your micromanaging boss to your underperforming direct report, image bearers. From your feral two-year-old to your declining grandmother, image bearers. Base black to treble white. So the image of God keeps us from ascending too high on the ladder of human greatness or too low into the valley of human humiliation. So why does this doctrine matter? I've only had time to look at really the tip of the iceberg by exploring especially the humanitarian implication that that we're all created gloriously equal in dignity. If I had three more sermons on this subject, I'd say this doctrine grounds a distinctly human Christian ecology because image bearers are the ones entrusted to steward God's creation. 
God's good world, so we're to take care of it. I'd say this doctrine revolutionizes how we think about gender and our bodies and sex, showing how it radically emphasizes the dignity of women and the glory of our sexually significant bodies. I'd say this doctrine ultimately points to the end of the story and the promise complete physical and spiritual restoration to the image of God's glory, which is now marred in us through sin. That's next week's sermon. I believe, Lisa, you're leading us into the story of the fall next week. Well, I'm going to leave you to follow those threads on your parish pilgrimage. Matt Canlis will take you down some of those roads. But I just want to ask, what would it look like if we as a family took this really, really seriously? I think we'd look like the early Christians who stood out by refusing to see dignity on a gradient. Treble white to base black. You know, they would not abort their children, nor would they dehumanize those who did. They would rescue and adopt baby girls left in the elements to die, which is quite common. They would provide for and look after widows and orphans. They would tend to and care and respect their elderly and their aging. They would treat their persecutors, those who were persecuting them, they would treat them with kindness. They would love their enemies. They would see gender as real, women as equals, sex as sacred, and immigrants as welcome. They would give Caesar his coins, but Jesus their loyalty. In other words, if we took this doctrine seriously, like our Christian ancestors of old, we'd look very weird to our modern world. You know, to recall Chesterton, to those stuck in tribe and type and slavish devotion to the fads and factions of the day, we'd look wild, category-breaking, untamed, undomesticated. I think we'd look free as falcons. Father, I pray that you would... Speak to each person here what they, need to, what they need to hear this morning. Maybe it's just that they are beloved as an image bearer and that they are uniquely and wonderfully made and there's a bedrock, unbreakable dignity to them that not just their neighbors, but they are the holiest object. Others just might need to be reminded to treat those around them as image bearers. Maybe there's particular people who... They're treating like dignities on a gradient. I pray that you would speak your truth to us by your spirit. Thank you for entrusting us with your image. What a great weight and joy and responsibility we have. And thank you most of all for the grace that you give us when we don't bear your image well. And thank you ultimately for Christ who does it perfectly in our place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.